0: Hey, hey there, beer fans! Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn.
1: And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Bad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we pick the brains of 25 of the world's best brewers and bring you their tips, tricks, and secrets. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning
0: the conventional wisdom and coming up with a way to check it out. And speaking of questions, Ah. it's Q&A day here on Experimental Brewing.
1: Oh yeah, but you know, first of course, we have your feedback, because we always have feedback. But yeah, the bulk of this episode, it's all us answering your questions, and hopefully maybe, maybe actually getting the right answers.
0: Yeah, maybe once or twice we can get one right, and if not, then uh, it'll just
1: be a lot of uh, entertainment for you guys. Yeah. But first, before we get to that point, well you got to hear from our sponsors, because they make it possible for us to bring you the show. So stick around,
0: and we will be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association,
0: a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership.
1: And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support.
0: Thank you all for sticking around. Before we uh, go any farther, we want to let you know that we have a new episode of The Brew Files that came out a week ago, episode 29 called It's Six O'Clock Somewhere. Drew is talking to Peter Simons again. Did a fascinating interview with him about a year ago, and uh, they're going to be talking about uh, Australian Prohibition, which thankfully doesn't exist anymore, and the rise of craft brewing in Australia. Uh, Peter always has some fascinating info, so check it out.
1: Uh, And we do know that the audio in that episode's a little strange, so bear with us, uh, bear with the audio. Uh, But otherwise, if you can dig into it, uh, it's totally worth it. But now, also, don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on our website and giving us a little bit of money that way for no cost to you. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's Habitat for Humanity
0: helping people build their own homes and uh, get out of the homeless cycle. They're all over the U S so please kick in some money. We'll pass it on to them and uh, help out some people and you can be doing a good thing.
1: Yeah, and so now of course it's time for your feedback because you like to talk back to us. We like to hear from you and don't forget that you can always leave us feedback at podcast at or, you know, find us some other way. We're, we're available. We tell you all the ways. So our both of our pieces of feedback uh, for this particular episode are actually about the Brew Files episode that we had a couple of weeks ago, all about going big. Now our first piece of feedback comes from Frank Osborne of Columbia, South Carolina, who emailed us to say, hey guys, I've just listened to your big beer brew files, and I have a few things to add. Me and a brew buddy just finished up a really big beer, a whopping 19.4%. Ouch. Ouch, indeed. It was mostly to see if we could do it, and we did. I've totally been there before, kind of stunt brewing. When we were first coming up with how to do this monumental beer, my first thought was what Drew always preaches, brew a smaller starter beer, and I thought, what better than a dark mild? Yes. No, No English yeast will last up to 19%, so how we overcame this is we pitched a packet of WLP 099 Super High Gravity Yeast. So the beer started at 1154, 1.154. That's big. Uh, Yeah, no kidding. And that was after a few honey additions. I let the beer uh, ferment for four weeks, and it read a shockingly low 1010, Uh, 1.010. Yeah. And I was floored by that number. But then I came back a few days later, and it was 1.008. With the yeast still in suspension, I quickly crashed the temperature and threw some Campton tablets and potassium sorbate to try and kill the yeast. So the moral of the story is, be careful with 099. It means business. So, yeah, uh, the other thing to also keep in mind about uh, WLP 099 is, according to the White Lab's website, it is one of the the yeast strains that has been identified as Ah. carrying the genetic signature of diastaticus. Uh, remember, we talked Remember we talked about diastaticus a few episodes ago. Yeah, diastaticus can produce diastase, which means it can convert all those longer chain starches and sugars that remain very, very slowly into something fermentable. Although I don't think that's going to be <laughs> happening over, you know, what was that, five weeks, four weeks? Uh, so, yeah, I think you just hit that thing with some simple sugars and a lot of healthy yeast. So uh, he also has offered to, to send us a couple bottles. Uh, because hey why not Uh, but he does want to let it finish aging because it's a little hot but uh, not as hot as you would expect from an almost 20 percent beer because he pitched at 64 and didn't let it rise above 66 the whole time of fermentation which is the right way to do it (laughs) yeah but what kind of (laughs) but i guess a (laughs) lot of malt
0: obviously the there and and, some money uh, you would guess that there wouldn't be much uh crystal or something in there although they did say they made a few honey additions so that would jack it up
1: huh oh yeah and also you know dry out real quick or at least go away real quick our other piece of feedback from the going big show uh, comes from billy c who says hey drew i'm going to brew a beer to age out quite a while and i wanted to know how the mortgage killer was going and if you see it still hitting a delicious goal at the end of the bottle stirring i've done one that i've aged out and i've got two bottles left at about six years now I feel the beer may have peaked. So I'm looking for help getting a true trucker of a barley wine. So the mortgage killer is still going strong. It's still hanging out there. And, you know, I've got, what am I at now? 23 years, 24 years, 23 years, 23, 23 years left. Uh, I will give you my my big piece of advice, which is uh, make sure you keep that thing someplace reasonably cool. So if you have spare fridge space, it's not a bad idea. Or if you have what I've done, which is snuck down into my cellar. I actually have a cellar in Southern California. It's weird. I, I store them in my cellar to just kind of keep them cool. Because at this point in time, yeah, your booze is only going to protect you so much. The hops are pretty much gone. And the only thing that's going to keep oxidation at bay is really going to be the amount of of slowdown you can put on that rate of chemical reaction, and that's what cold is for. So if you have plenty of cold storage, go and use that. That that will definitely help you. And yeah, I know somebody out there is going, well, you could wax the bottle caps. No, that doesn't help. So You you know, I did
0: see an interesting suggestion the other day, and I don't know if it had actually been tried or not, but someone suggested to store bottles for a longer period of time, put them into a keg, and flush the keg with CO2. Right, hold on the bottles in the keg put the bottles in the keg right and flush the keg with co2
1: okay eh? yeah i mean i could see that working my only my only fear would be how to protect the bottles when i move the keg
0: (laughs) 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 yeah I, i don't know that that was not addressed but i have to admit it's it's an interesting concept isn't it oh homebrewers What won't you think of? (laughs) Yeah, right. If there's one thing homebrewers are good at, it's interesting concepts.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, at that point in time, you might as well just say, you know what? I put the beer in one big bottle. It's called a keg, and I purged it with CO2. (laughs) <laughs> but then it's not bottled right this is true but i'm i'm just trying to think of the logistics of getting bottles <laughs> in and out and moving the keg but you'd
0: have to have very skinny arms wouldn't you
1: oh yeah well there you go there's an alternative suggestion but yeah i am a big fan of keeping things like that cold and i think it helps a lot now keep in mind i mean no matter what i think you're always going to have a level of oxidation and at some point in time it's going to be no good i mean there are people out there who are still hitting some of those original batches of Valentine's Burton Ale, and I think at this point in time, those are 70, 80 years old, and yeah, they definitely show their age, but they're interesting. <laughs> Very
0: much so, man.
1: Okay, you feeling
0: smart? Mm, maybe. <laughs> well, I guess we'll find out in just a minute, because we're going to dive into answering some questions. So stick around, we're going to be right back. YCH Hops is a grower-owned global hop company located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms with the world's finest brewers. YCH Hops is thrilled about the release of their newest product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Visit YCHHops.com to find a homebrew retail store near you. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, beer. All right, it is time for digging into the questions that we've gotten. We're going to start off with uh, some about uh, water and ingredients and take it from there. So, Drew, why don't you read the first one?
1: Sure. Our first question comes from uh, Craig Peters in Iowa, who emails to ask about water. He says, my question questions pertains to brewing salt additions and acidification of mash and sparge water. Here in eastern Iowa, our water is very hard and not really suitable for brewing. I choose to buy RO water and use the brewing water calculator to adjust my water profile based on the style of beer in brewing. When is the appropriate time to add salt additions? I've heard to add to the mash water once warm or to add once grain and water are mixed. As far as acidifying the mash and sparge water, does it matter when the lactic or phosphoric acid is added? One area I struggle with is small additions of salt and acid measurements for 5-gallon batches. Any tips or tricks for these additions? Thanks for all that you do. Mr. Denny, you're the brewing water expert, so off to you.
0: Expert is giving me more credit than I deserve, but what I do know enough to do is take the advice of experts. So uh, in terms of when to add salts and acids, I do what Martin Bruengard advises, and I add them all to the mash and sparge water before it starts heating. Um or, you know, maybe at the very beginning of heating within a few minutes. It doesn't really matter, but you want to get them in there uh, not into the mash because they'll dissolve a lot better and more evenly in the water. As far as how to measure small amounts. Uh, for weighing salts, I use what is called a grain scale. It's a reloading scale for reloading shotgun shells. I have that because it was inexpensive when I needed a scale. And uh, it weighs in grains, which is a 15th of a gram. So you can get pretty darn accurate that way, and they're not too expensive. For measuring acids, I use graduated syringes, and that's easy to suck up small amounts of the acids with those and get them into your kettle. So hopefully that'll help you out a bit there, Craig.
1: I was just down at the BYO boot camp a few days ago, and one of the talks I popped in on was Gordon Strong talking about all of his advanced all-grain practice. And he talked a lot about water salts and everything else because he starts everything with RO water, so he's in the same place as you. Uh, only acidifies to a pH of 5.5 five and lets everything else ride out, but he also separates out his color malts and does that. But uh, all of his uh, water additions, one, he's very light on water additions in terms of flavor and whatnot, uh, but he uses basically calcium chloride to get his, his mash calcium up to the right area. But everything else, he doesn't do anything in the sparge. Uh, it does everything in either the mash or boil, and he does... He mixes the salts in with the grains uh, before uh, before setting everything up, and he doesn't pay any attention to his mash pH until he's let it sit for 15 minutes so that it has proper time to adjust after the mash.
0: Well, you know, even Gordon can be wrong. Well, I know. I'm just quoting I'm Gordon. <laughs> <things. laughs> no, no, no. Uh, you know, obviously Gordon makes great beer, so uh, he's got to be doing something right. Uh, I prefer to follow Martin's advice to put them in the water uh, because uh, his experience is that they mix more thoroughly that way. I don't like adding the dark malts late because it changes the character you get from the dark malt, and I prefer to uh, deal with the mash pH and put the dark malt in with everything else, unless I'm going for the the different mellower character of making the malts a late edition. And I find it very curious that Gordon adjusts his water pH. Uh I don't I don't do that again on Martin's advice. I put in whatever Brunewater tells me that will adjust the pH in the mash uh, because I don't care about the water. Sounds like Gordon is talking about adjusting his water to start with and then taking a pH reading of the mash and doing more adjustment there if necessary.
1: No, he he actually starts with RR water and just satisfies it to 5.5 five and then leaves it. Uh, and that's the reason why he does all of his dark malts and his crystal malts outside of the main mash. He does those as cappers. And then right. uh, all of his salt additions are actually all about flavor adjustment. So.
0: Right. And again, that's, that's basically my theory too. But um, it, it, you mentioned he checks the pH of the mash about 15 minutes in. Mm. And so uh, well, I, I
1: assume. I, he, I think he, he pretty does, much, he, that's what he used to do. I think he pretty much is just now at the point where I know my water, I know how it reacts, and therefore I don't have to measure anymore.
0: Yeah, right. And that's kind of where I'm at, too. Uh, I don't check very often because I know that with my water and following the instructions in Brunewater that I'm going to be right where I want to be, so I don't worry about it anymore. Okay, bud, it's your turn now. This one is uh, from Scott Mendes via email, and Scott says... What's the difference between RO and distilled water when it comes to all-grain brewing? I recently dropped a nice chunk of change on an RO system from H HBREWO and can't help but wonder if it was worth the investment. What can I say? I like brew toys like the next geek. Mm. Anyway, I brew weekly and find myself waiting hours for my 5-gallon bottles to fill with RO water. When I say hours, I mean it can take upwards of 8 hours to get 10 gallons of RO water together for a brew day. I recently started wondering if I could just pick up jugs of distilled water for spontaneous or not-so-spontaneous brew days and still get similar results. I figure I would still be adding brewing salts to dial in my water profiles in brewing water, and distilled water for the most part is basically a clean slate to work from, just like RO water. I mainly use gypsum, calcium chloride, and lactic acid to build my water profiles. From time to time, some baking soda to raise pH for stouts.
1: Yep. So, Scott, I will say that the uh, primary difference between RO and distilled water for brewing purposes is nothing. Now, in reality, here's the thing. You you worded it as said that the the distilled water, for the most part, is basically a clean slate to work from, just like RO water. Close, but I would flip the emphasis there. RO water is mostly a clean slate-like Distilled water. Distilled water is going to almost always be a much more neutral starting place because RO water, well, RO water depends upon how well maintained your RO system is and how well functional it is. You know, how clean your filters are, how, you know, how fresh everything is in the system. And yeah, so your RO system is going to drift over time, particularly as it needs more maintenance. And you are more likely to have a mineral load from your RO system than you ever are from your distilled system. Now, you could actually distill your own water. That is actually a legal use for a still here in the U S but most of us aren't going to do that. So to my mind, yeah, if you're going to look at doing something for a spontaneous brew session, distilled water is a perfectly fine place to start. In fact, if you want to go supplement your RO water with distilled water, I don't think anybody would look at you funny uh, for that purpose, but yeah, you're right. I mean, you hit upon one of the big things that is sort of a pain about RO systems is it takes time because the way an RO system works is it's, Essentially, forcing water through a series of membranes, and those membranes are blocking the salts and everything else. And then it goes through activated char- charcoal and all that. But that takes time, it takes pressure, and it generates a, a fair amount of wastewater as well. So, I mean, at least for me here in California, I know that even with the sort of water costs and the environmental costs from somebody running a centralized distillation plant and then shipping it out to places. I think the impact, at least in terms of water usage, is a lot less with me going and buying distilled water than it is for me using RO water. However, having said that, toys are fun.
0: Yeah, I think I think that uh, basically you could go either way. RO water will probably have just a few more minerals to it than distilled. But like Drew said, if your system is well-maintained, it's going to be a very minor difference my feeling would be that you can buy a whole heck of a lot of distilled water for what you put into that RO system. So you've got it now. It's up to you which way you want to go. Me, I'm pragmatic. I just go buy distilled.
1: Well, and for me, I I have a grocery store within real short walking distance. I have a water store within short walking distance. So for me, even the lugging of the distilled water isn't that hard. But there you go. I, but to get to the heart of the matter, effectively, for almost all your brewing applications, RO water, distilled water, all comes out in the wash.
0: Yep, exactly.
1: Next question. Yes, indeed. All right. Now we move on to some recipe questions. Uh, first one comes in here from Aaron Orwick, uh, who is in Minnesota. He emailed us to say, I enter several competitions throughout the year, and the one local competition I get the most excited for is the Minnesota State Fair, a.k.a. the Great Minnesota Get-Together. I have a goal of a blue ribbon in the Mertzen Oktoberfest category and have been tweaking my recipe for the past couple of years. The current version is attached, and we got it, so we'll read from it. So far, I have received a second and third place finish, but that first place blue ribbon has been elusive. Do you have any advice from a recipe or process standpoint? Some other info that seemed to be missing in the report would probably help. For the 2017 version, I used distilled water with the AccuMash Amber Salt Packs that I picked up at HomebrewCon. I do full volume mashes and this one was 156 degrees Fahrenheit for 60 minutes. I split the 10-gallon batch into two 5 gallon fermenters. I had the equivalent of a 3 liter starter for each 5 gallon split. I fermented this at 50 to 53 deg- degrees Fahrenheit for 5 days until it reached 1020. The will rest at 65 degrees Fahrenheit for three days until final gravity of 1017. Then cold crash, kegged, and lagered for one month at 36 degrees Fahrenheit, the coldest I can get my chamber in the summer before packaging enough for the state fair. The remainder of the batch lagered for a second month before serving in September. I'd already planned on switching from the AccuMash pack to something more prescriptive, as I've since bought all the brewing salts to add to distilled water on my own. Anything else you can think of? Different yeast? Malt? Hops? Decoction? Denny, did you just spit out your beer? Yes? No, I didn't
0: spit out my beer, uh, partially because I'm drinking water. But, you know... Decoction might help, but you know, Aaron, I got to tell you, this question is a bit like how long is a piece of string, because I don't know what kind of comments you got on your beer and what areas you might need to improve in. To right off the bat, I don't see anything. Really wrong with your recipe? I, it may be a little heavier on cara malts than I would go for for this. Well, oh,
1: uh, and before we dig into that, we probably should tell people what the recipe is. I'm just about to do that. Yeah. Well, my it, question <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: The recipe is about uh, 27% Pilsner, 27% Munich, about 28% Vienna, 6% each of aromatic cara foam and cara Munich. That's. To me, that's a bit heavy on the on the caramels between those three, uh, especially with the aromatic and Caramunic, I generally don't use much, if any, of those in my uh, in my own Oktoberfest beers. Um, so that would be that would be something you could start looking at, uh, I, based on my own use of the Acumash salts. I don't think you're going to be gaining anything by doing your own water treatment, but you have the stuff. So it is certainly worth a try. Uh, I wonder if maybe what could be happening is oxidation cutting back on some of your flavors a bit. But again, without knowing what kind of comments you got and what you think of it and where you want to take it, that's about the best guess I can make, buddy.
1: Yeah, and I'll I'll just back up uh, to say some of the things here where I think there are too many malts going on in here. Yeah, um, but you guys you guys know me and you know I'm I'm all about trying to simplify. So I I would yeah I would knock out two of the three that you have there in terms of the Aramac, the Carefum, and the Care Munich. I would probably just knock out the Vienna malt as well and just make that a flat Munich malt edition. So it's just... See, I,
0: I like the Vienna malt in there. I well, think that that I, I kind of helps I think dry you need, it out a bit. I
1: think you need one or the other. The other thing I noticed is that in Aaron's description, he said that when this thing was into the diastole rest, it was at 1017, which to my mind is pretty high. The beer started at 1062. Uh, mm-hmm. I think for uh, Marison, you want this to come down a lot lower. So I think you get a combination of that via eliminating some of these crystals. And yeah, I mean, fine, it, Dealer's choice. either choose between Vienna which will take you lighter or in Munich which I think gives you kind of more that that bready character and I would almost say balance the Pilsner and the Munich slash Vienna edition so that they're kind of half and half and then Yeah. yeah drop and then drop out two of those three toasty caramel malts that you've got. You know choose choose like uh you know leave some of the caramunic in there or leave some of the aromatic or leave some of the carafom don't have all three,
0: and I would I would say go with the pilsner Munich and Vienna and get rid of the other three malts so there's there's two different approaches for you to experiment with there um, I don't know wh- what malts you're using I mean who what, who the maltster is so you know I assume that you're using good quality German malts yeah, but I, I would that, assume from the
1: wireman. Um, they, the, uh, they are. Yeah, uh, the because uh, the, they're all uh, they're marked as German. So either wire, either Vierrman or Best. <laughs> there's other German monsters. I know, but Vierrman's the most common one. All right. <laughs> Jeez. So, so really, we don't know. Yeah. We know, uh, we know it's German. Yeah.
0: We Fine. hope it's German.
1: All right, and then uh, the other thing I also note is that his choice of yeast strain is the White uh, Yeast 2206 Bavarian Lager. Right. And I find, at least for Oktoberfest, I prefer the Munich lager strain. And uh, the Munich lager to me is uh, more traditional in, in in these beers, but the Munich lager strain is also more uh, temperamental and really requires you to make sure that you do your diastyl rest and help it drive off the final bit of diastyl. But I like the character of that better.
0: Right. Uh, and, that, and that's why I generally try and avoid that Uh, but yeah i think i think that without knowing specifically what you're going for aaron those are some suggestions uh that we see and you're just going to have to mess around and see what you can come up with
1: and of course don't forget that there's a whole crew of people out there who would say yes decoction i don't think i don't think that's us here
0: (laughs) no no i don't i don't think so either uh but you know like i said when you're that close to your goal. You're just going to have to play around with some tweaks and see what works and what doesn't. Indeed. All right. Next question. Next question comes in via voicemail from Gus Chambers.
2: Hey, Denny and Drew. My name is Gus Chambers from Rockford, Illinois. I just have a quick question. Um, I'm trying to make my best version of an IPA. I know there's a few ways to go about this, um, but I mainly have a question about the base grain that I'd be using um, I've been reading Jeff Allworth's new book, uh, Master Brewers, um, I believe is what it's called, uh, Shapers of the Master Brewers, and um, I've been reading that book, and it's uh, about mainly the American tradition of the hoppy ales. He mentions two-row as the base malt, along with maybe a little bit of specialty grains and uh, crystal and yada, yada. I currently have a ton of great Western pale malt. They have pale malt and two-row that they sell, as you may know, uh, that I would like to use instead um, of the two-row that he suggests. I have the pale malt. He suggests the two-row. The pale malt is about three degrees level bond. The two-row is about two degrees level bond. Uh, will I really uh, notice a difference, do you think, between the two? Um, Drew, I know you're a fan of Maris Otter, uh, so maybe that's uh, a good go-to also. I'm just curious on your guys' thoughts. Maybe, uh, you know, I should uh, I should know this and just experiment and do a couple different beers myself, one with two-row, one with GW uh, Pale, and uh, go from there. But uh, I'm curious on your guys' take on this. Thanks again, and have a good one.
1: All right. Well, thank you, guys for calling in and leaving us a voicemail. Uh, remember, folks, that you can always call and leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1AL, 626-765-1AL. And, Gus, I'm going to tell you right now, I think you're going to be fine either way. I know Jeff and company would probably recommend the Great Western Two-Row, the paler one, just because that is arguably the most common malt that you're going to be able to get your hands on in most uh, homebrew shops and a lot of breweries. So, I know that's probably the reason for that particular one. But, yeah, I think using the pale ale malt, which is just slightly darker, is going to be fine. Uh, Yes, in my case, I do like to use Maris Otter. But... Remember that a lot of the traditional sort of uh, Burton white malt type beers, that was uh, something that you replicate by blending Maris Otter, and Pilsner too. So I think even then you're going to kind of get a step down. And actually, for the record, blending pale and Pils malt in an IPA is a really great way to go to get a really crisp back end character, I think. So yeah, you're going to be fine using your, your pale malt that you have there. I think particularly if you're going to make a really big hoppy beer. I'm going to guess there's not a chance in hell you're going to notice. Yeah, that's
0: what I was going to say. Now, Gus, we're going to start off by assuming you're trying to make an American IPA here as opposed to a British one. That's where I don't care for Maris Otter. I feel like Maris Otter is just not appropriate in American IPA, my own feeling. I know that other people disagree with me. Yes, we do. They have a right to be wrong. But in terms of the difference, I mean, okay, first of all, just a little nomenclature here. Pale malt is two-row, right? And those designations are pretty much interchangeable. If there is a difference of one degree level bond between what somebody is calling two-row or pale malt, you're never going to notice that difference. Uh, So go ahead. If you have the Great Western Pale Malt, I've used that for years being an Oregonian, and it comes from this area, and I love it. It's a great malt. Uh so just go for it it works great for an American IPA. My standard basic American IPA recipe is 90% pale malt and 10% crystal 60. That's kind of like the the classic Sierra Nevada formula and it and it works for me. So um go for it man and I would say work with what you've got and then you know See if maybe the Maris Otter is necessary. It may be, may not be Drew's idea of blending like a, a pale or Maris Otter with the pills to kind of like cut the, the maltiness and crisp it up. That's not a bad idea either. You, you're going to have to experiment, man. When you say make my best version of an IPA, that's going to come down to what you like. So start, uh, start experimenting, changing one thing at a time on each batch.
1: Yep. And I'll tell you what, I'm still trying to make the best version of my IPA. And you will be, too.
0: (laughs) Yeah, really. Okay, the next question comes from Anthony Matizo, who says, The other day I was looking at a grain spec from Great Western Malt and noticed that they listed the malt color in ASBC. I have not come across ASBC before, and I was wondering if this is the same as SRM. I wanted to accurately enter the correct levabon value in brewing water and could not find a clear explanation of ASBC. Thank you for taking the time to review my question.
1: Yep. So, uh, Anthony, uh, ASBC is just the American Society of Brewing Chemists. Uh, so it is a whole society that is dedicated to doing nothing but standardizing the sort of uh, tests that we use to measure things like SRM, IBUs, alcohol. All that sort of fun stuff. Uh, ASBC is, you know, sort of the research organization in the standards body that uh, sort of quantifies what all that is. So you'll actually see references to ASBC tests uh, by specific, you know, ID number. And that's a, a very specific protocol that people are supposed to follow in order to come up with these numbers. So on the whole color thing, uh, SRM, the standard reference, me- uh, I think it's what, standard reference measure, measurement? Yeah, uh, standard reference method, I believe. Or method, there you go is an ASBC standardized method. And it's just a way of measuring color. So back in the old days with Lovabond, Lovabond was actually a visual test where they had jars of colored water, effectively, at different scales uh, or different levels on that sort of red-brown scale that happens with uh, beer. And you would actually just compare your sample to a visual reference sample to figure out where your Lovabond was. Now, of course, this being the modern day and age, that's sort of tedious and inaccurate because you're depending upon the human eye. So ASPC uh, created a methodology that measures a certain amount of wort at a certain sample size, a certain column depth, and what the absorption is at, I think it's uh, 430 nanometers uh, wavelength. So that's where we get SRM. Now, you'll also see the other one that gets a little confusing out there is you'll also see EBC which is the european method for uh, for measuring color there's the ebc which is the european burn congress and it's roughly the same i mean it's the exact same set of measurements basically at you know certain column depth at 430 nanometers and the only difference is there's a a scaling factor involved and so ebc is not quite but pretty close to twice what srm is so there you go more than likely i'm going to i'm going to guess without Without, you know, doing more uh, digging into it, uh, when Great Western talks about uh, ASPC, they mean the SRM level.
0: Makes sense to me, man. Ta-da! <laughs> Good job. That's There's one that kind of makes sense.
1: Yeah. Uh, and color, uh, color is a fun one. I used to work uh, uh, way back in the day when I first got involved in actually being a professional. I worked in trying to set up uh, uh, hexachromatic color spaces for film printing uh, via laser. Color math is really hard, (laughs) really hard. You would think that that you would think that something that's intuitive or something that we can just see would be intuitive. It turns out the second you try and apply math into it. No, no, it is not. So there you go. That's, uh, that's my best take on that. Uh, So yeah, uh, these days you can kind of roughly think SRM is equal to love bond, uh, mostly for historical purposes but uh, there's also the EBC measurement out there. But for the most part, that only comes into matter if you're looking at recipes from Europe. So go forth, have fun. Wow. Okay, man. All right. So our next question uh, also in the world of grain comes from Philip Rusher via email. He says, Oh, Hey fellas. I've been sitting on an old sack of Maris Otter for about a year of which there's currently about 10 pounds left. I tasted it last night and it's definitely stale but without any other overt signs of spoilage. I was planning on using it to make wort for yeast propagation, but I'm curious to hear about what you all do with your old ingredients. Have you ever made a stale pale ale? Couldn't resist the rhyme. Or something of the sort. And hey, stale pale ale was actually a thing at some point. So,
0: Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to point out. Uh, getting to that last comment first, back in the 50s, there was a beer around called Old Frothing Slosh, and it was known as the stale pale ale with the foam on the bottom. Uh, hysterical bottles. Uh, I have a collection of a few of them. But uh, yeah, stale pale ale has been done, uh, although I don't know how stale it really was. Uh, even even for me, that's a long time ago. Uh, so no, I have not made a stale pale ale. Not too long ago, I dumped out probably 100, 125 pounds of stale grain because i uh, i bit into a kernel of one of the bags and it just mushed it it was terrible Uh, i didn't want to waste the time and effort making beer and decided that i would just feed it to my deer instead so uh, that's that's my method for dealing with old stale ingredients the best method would be to brew more and not let them get stale but uh, then there's reality
1: yeah, yeah, reality has a way of intruding, but I, I've totally done the same thing where I've uh, used it to go create yeast propagation, and I think as long as you're not in the department like where Denny is, where or Denny is talking about, where it's mushy and the the grain is mealy, I think you're actually okay to use it for brewing. I don't think you're going to want to try and make like you know your Blondale or your Pilsner out of it, but hey, we have hops, we have other flavors you can distract, and otherwise, yeah, there are other alternatives that you can use for it, but. For the most part, the answer is brew more or also, I mean, I'll tell you what, like when I, when I store my, my grain away in those vital vaults that I have, you know, with the gamma lids and all that sort of fun stuff, that grain stays pretty damn good for a really long while. So yeah, I wouldn't worry about it. If the, as long as the grain isn't mushy, mealy and terrible tasting, I think you're fine. Just don't try and use it for a Pilsner.
0: Right. Exactly. Uh I've used moderately stale grain and just kind of use small amounts and hidden it in things. Uh you know, you're always better off if you don't have to do that, if it's really stale. Like you're saying, you know, mash a whole bunch of it and make starters out of it. Sounds good. Your turn, buddy. This one comes in from our friend Eric Pierce, who says when discussing mashing, I've heard it said that multiple steps and decoctions aren't necessarily required because grain is so highly modified these days. I'm curious as to just what these mysterious modifications are. Yeah, I mean they put like chrome wheels and stuff on it. The
1: GMOs, People been- GMOs!
0: <laughs> People have been sprouting barley and kilning it for many centuries. What are modern malt houses doing now that they didn't do in the past? Oh, this is an easy one, man.
1: Oh, yeah. There's so much going on. But first, actually, the major change starts well before you get to the malt house. They are growing new strains of barley. So there are a lot of new strains of barley that aren't the same as what they were in the past. The farmers have become better about being able to produce higher quality malt that has, say, lower protein levels, but also more starch and more enzymatic uh, capacity to them. So really, it all starts with what's coming in out of the field to the malt house to begin with. Modification just really refers to the you know the level of degree of sort of readiness that the malt has for for the brewing process because you'll hear people talk about modification in terms of malting. Because that's really where it starts with is, you think about what malting is, it's that sprouting, right? You know, sprouting and kilning. Well, that sprouting is a, a it does a modification on the grain to, in order to basically activate the enzymes and you know, make it ready to go. So, maltsters not only are getting better and hotter barley grains out of the fields with lower protein levels and, and much, ready, much more ready to go to begin with, they've also gotten a lot better about their process. So, back in the old days, it used to be dudes with shovels walking around floors. And that's, by the way, that's what floor malt is. Although, they're more sophisticated than that now. And it used to be all done by touch, feel, sight, you know, smell, sound, etc. These days, it's highly computerized. It is highly mechanized. It is measured within an inch of its entire life. And everything is a much more accurate process. And, you know, even floor malting is more accurate now. But a lot of malt is actually done in sort of these... Yeah, you know, big, big industrial-sized processes that are yeah, you know, a far cry from what used to be done, and allows for a much finer degree of control. So start with what's coming in. Start with what's start with the whole process change that's happening. It's not it's not just Farmer John making malt anymore. Uh, they are actually really uh, sophisticated systems now, and all that com- comes together to basically lead to the idea that we don't have to do any sort of helping steps in our mash anymore. To maximize the starch output and maximize the the availability of the enzymes to do their job, how's that for an answer? Convoluted. <laughs> Fine. Just B- better malt, better malting process.
0: Yeah, right. And, and just you know, in in a nutshell, um, what's happening is that uh, malt juice have discovered a way to get more diastatic power into the malt so that it converts better. So basically, more highly modified means more diastatic power in there, uh, more enzymes to convert the malt, so it's easier to do than it used to. The the maltsters are doing the work for you. Yay! Yay, yay! Before we get into our questions about yeast and hops, we're going to take a quick break here and listen to some words from some of our sponsors. So stick around. We're going to be back with yeast and hop questions. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaca is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaca is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaca you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaca wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. We're back, and it's time to start talking about yeast. And this first question for you, Drew, is from Peter Weiss, who says, Hi, Drew. You like saisons, right? Where did he ever get that idea? You like White Lab's 585, right? I used it once when it was a limited release strain and loved the results. Maybe as much as I like the WLP-565, WI-3724 DuPont strains. But how can I be sure? Brew with it some more. So when I saw this yeast in the White Lab's vault, I signed up. Only to be disappointed by this email. A new year means new strains for the vault for homebrewers. We have updated the strains in the vault, which means we're taking some strains out and adding new strains in. We're reaching out because you submitted a pre-order for WLP 585 Belgian Saison 3 Ale Yeast. Unfortunately... This is one of the strains that we have removed from the vault. Subsequent inquiries to White Labs resulted in the following message. As we add more strains to our catalog, we need to look at some of our older, lower-selling strains to see if it still makes sense to offer them. We can only grow so much yeast at a time, and as demand increases for other strains, we had to make the decision to retire a strain of yeast and move some to the vault. Unfortunately, no matter what strains we choose, some people will have loved them and be disappointed. WLP 585 is one of our lowest selling strains and one of the most difficult to maintain, so it didn't make sense to keep that in our lineup. So they removed it from the limited edition strains, and now they have removed it from the vault. How do we get White Labs to make this strain again? Maybe there are enough people in your audience who want another crack at this strain as badly as I do. I appeal to you, to appeal to your listeners, to appeal to White Labs to bring back this lovely yeast.
1: Listeners, you've heard Peter's message. I appeal to you to appeal to White Labs to bring back this yeast. The quick story about the WLP 585 uh, Saison 3. I have no clue what brewery it's from. But years ago, when I started the Saison strain guide, I reached out to White Labs and said, hey, I want to do this experiment. Can you guys give me all the Saison yeast that you have and give me anything interesting that you have? And they said, okay. And they sent me a couple of ones that were not commercially available at the time. And one of them was the White Labs... 585 stays on three and we tested it and we brought it to the HA crowd. And as I did my talk and we served out samples, by the way, to give you an idea that this is how long ago now that I managed to serve seven samples during a talk. And you can't do that anymore. at The conference, (laughs) Um, that one was by far and away everybody's uh, favorite outside of the one that came from a bottle of phantom that isn't commercially available anywhere. And, It was a real fruit-driven nose. It had sort of some interesting lactic-y type characters to it, but also uh, ginger. And because of the ginger and I think those yogurt-type things, it had kind of a sweeter perceived finish. But it was, I think, the crowd's favorite. And so the crowd appealed to White Labs, and White Labs released it commercially. And now White Labs has taken it away. So, yes, it is one of my favorite strains, and I would love to be able to have that available to more people. So email the folks at White Labs and say, but we want this strain. And if they put it back in the vault, maybe we can actually get some of it released out to the public. But yeah, it's a really nice drain, and I'm kind of sad that it's gone.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it certainly isn't going to hurt to ask them to try and get a group of people together and appeal to them. I think you're going to need a lot of people to make an impact. Uh, Remember, for us, this is a hobby that we're passionate about. For White Labs, they have the passion, but they also have a business to run, and they have to make money. And they can't afford to keep a yeast strain around that uh, isn't selling. So, uh, Well, the, the good news is that?
1: that it's still probably in cold storage, right? It's not like they they just tossed the yeast strain. They just can't grow it up for us right now.
0: Yeah, right. So, you know, um, start a campaign. See what you can do. <laughs> that's, that's all I can say, man. And, and good luck, because I know it's a real bummer when one of your favorite yeast strains goes away.
1: All right. So next yeast question comes from uh, Michael Ragabarone. Uh, From Burning Shed Brewery of Ballston Spa, New York. I'll bet there's a
0: story there, huh? Burning Uh, Shed?
1: Yep. (laughs) Uh, We should uh, just remind everybody that you have burning pants. Let's not. He emailed us to say, I was wondering if there's a limit in starter size before a quality impact is observed. The standard starter size is one or two liters, but for many beers, this isn't enough to grow a culture to the desired cell count in one go. Is there any reason why you can't do a very large starter, such as a several-gallon starter in a carboy, for direct pitching or perhaps to save for future brews? My concern would be possibly overstressing the yeast or under-oxygenation and generating some undesirable off-flavors. What say you?
0: Well, you know, this is an interesting question. I've never really heard it discussed, but let's let's approach it like this. If you look at a smack pack of y yeast, they say that that smack pack is good for up to 5 gallons of 1060 wort. Now, my feeling has always been that maybe they're overestimating a bit, and maybe maybe 1040 is a better limit. That jives more with my practical experience. So, considering that a yeast starter should usually be under 1040, maybe like in the mid-30s, I guess that you could pitch a smack pack into five gallons of that for making a starter. Uh, that's that's about as close as I can guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, here's the thing is I don't think you're going to have any sort of magical magical off flavors here if you're exceeding things you know, too much as long as you're staying within reason. So, yeah, I would say five gallons and go. I mean, it's very much the same thing as like what we recommended in the big beer show. If you're going to make a big beer. Go, go brew a batch of beer first and use that yeast cake. Uh, so, no, I think I think you're fine. I don't think you know taking and making a starter of three gallons is going to cause you any issues. I think that you
0: could do that fine. You know, uh, get a three gallon carboy, make a starter in there, save in different containers, and uh, you have yeast slurries ready to go for in the future.
1: Yeah, and just make sure though that this means that you have to really practice good sanitation. You okay. have make sure make yeah. sure you're practicing safe yeast handling.
0: <laughs> yeah, and probably give it a, a healthy shot of uh, aeration, oxygenation uh, when you do it. But, yeah, I, I don't see any practical reason you couldn't make a starter that big. Although, at that point, it becomes beer. So
1: Right. Well, that's always the problem. And that's the reason why I always recommend for those big beers, make a small beer first. Right. Because why do that? <laughs> yeah,
0: man. You know, two for the price of one. Our next question comes from Bjorn Bjornsson of Norway, who says... I love your podcast and listen to it whenever I'm doing low-intensity cardio. For high-intensity training, I need something more intense than ukulele playing. Man, you haven't heard me with my ukulele run through
1: a distortion box yet. See, and I still want you to do Ace of Spades on the ukulele, because then that'd be perfect for Hit.
0: Yeah, well, uh, okay, I'll keep that in mind. I've been brewing for a couple of years, Bjorn says. I try to brew weekly, but as life will have it, that's not possible. Oh, tell me about it, man. In 2017, I managed 45 batches, which is not too bad. A lot better than me, buddy. I was going to say, that's that's pretty damn good. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I have two questions. First is regarding my oatmeal stout. The last batches of my oatmeal stout, I've either cold-steeped the roasted malts for 24 hours or mashed them separately for 15 to 20 minutes at 152 degrees Fahrenheit. And the word from this I will add when there's five minutes left in the boil. What do I do with the water profile? I can't adjust it as I would if I had the roasted malts in the mash, so I guess I just adjust according to the lighter malts in the mash, right? But what do I do when I add the wort from the roasted malts? What kind of adjustments do I do to complement this less harsh roasted malt character? Second is about a yeast starter technique that I've been using. I just recently found out it's called draufflausen, or double batch. This must be the easiest way to go from a small amount of yeast to a large starter. I'll build up a starter from a single pack of liquid yeast or a small amount of slurry with my Erlenmeyer flask and stir plate. Adjust the amount of wort I pitch to the size of the starter, thus in effect creating a huge starter of 20 liters. And then pitch the rest of the wort within 24 to 48 hours. I do store the wort refrigerated and oxygenate the wort before pitching. Is there any reason why this technique that I have been led to believe is quite common in commercial breweries is hardly mentioned in any homebrewing literature? Is there a reason not to do this? Wouldn't this technique be ideal for your falcon claws?
1: Why why don't you tackle the oatmeal stout question first? Uh, Because you already already hinted at it that that you don't like to do this because you don't want to you've already adjusted your your water.
0: Yeah, right. And again, you know, I have found both through cold steeping or adding roasted malt slate, it, it does cut back on the roast flavor. And for my taste, it can actually make a beer kind of like insipid tasting without a little bit of bite from the roast malt. When I was experimenting with this, I, uh, I mellowed out the beer so much that you could hardly tell it was beer anymore. So I would say you're on the right track adjust your um, mash for the light malts that are actually there. And then you could adjust your kettle pH after you add the, uh, the dark wort to it from, from the cold steep or the separate mash. Um, that would be about the only way I could see to deal with it. Check your pH in the kettle and adjust uh, so that it's in like the 5.2, 5.4 range in the kettle. And you know, that's how I would do it. Although probably what I would do is just not even worry about it.
1: Yeah. I, I wouldn't worry about uh, checking the pH and, and adjusting that. I think you're going to be fine because again, your roast character, I think does drop off some, but we need to test that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now on the second, the second question about the yeast starter technique. So just to summarize what we, what it looks like is happening here uh, that you're doing is basically make a starter, then figure out what the gravity of the beer is and how much, you know, how much extra starter you need. Put the first portion of wort in with the the starter. Let that go for a little bit. And meanwhile, you have the rest of the, the wort off to the side, refrigerated in a sanitized container. And then when you've let your big starter finally finish, then go into the, the rest of the wort. And so Bjorn's first comment was, okay, well, why don't we hear about a lot of this in the homebrewing literature if... This is very common in the commercial world, as he's been led to believe. here's the thing i've I've never heard of a commercial brewery doing this particular way of doing this sort of thing. The thing I always hear from commercial breweries and at least in the ones I've been around that they do call double badging is that they will have a yeast brink or yeast in a cone in a fermenter uh, ready to go like a uh, an old yeast cake, and they will brew a batch of beer, they will pitch the yeast into that uh, initial batch of beer so let's say for instance it's a seven barrel brewery and they have 14 barrel tanks or 15 barrel tanks they'll brew a batch of, uh, of beer at seven barrels run that through the yeast into the tank uh, that they're going to start doing the fermentation in now that tank is half filled and immediately the next shift goes and brews another batch of beer of the exact same recipe another seven barrels and then pumps that into the, the same tank. And the idea is that first batch is really sort of growing up your yeast colony and getting it super active so that by the time the second half of the wort hits, you're fine, and everything's ready to go. Now, that's what I hear a lot of, and sometimes you'll even see breweries doing that three or four times where their brew system is a third of the size or a fourth of the size of their largest fermenters, and they'll just brew consecutive batches to fill the whole fermenter, the whole time raising up the yeast just via natural growth. So that's what I know commercial breweries do. I've never heard of a commercial brewery doing this particular technique where they brew a whole length of wort and then only expose the yeast to part of it at a time. Because obviously the big risk that you have is contamination. Now, as long as you have great faith in your sanitation practices, as long as you know that you're not going to screw this up, I think there's absolutely no reason that you can't do this. I think it's just an extra process, an extra step and an extra risk of infection. I think if I was really going to do this, I would. I would probably follow the double batching method I know from commercial breweries, but that's my take. Denny, have you ever heard of a commercial brewery doing this particular no? Format?
0: No, I haven't. What I'm familiar with is exactly what you describe, where their uh, their brew system is smaller than the fermenters, so they have to brew several times to fill the fermenter, but they pitch the yeast with the first batch, and then the uh, the other batches go on to actively fermenting yeast.
1: Yeah, and but, and the advantage for that for commercial breweries, obviously a brew system is way more expensive than a bigger tank. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you also get better yeast health going into your batches. So, it kind of has a double uh, a double effect. Allows them to grow capacity without necessarily having to, you know, spend a lot of capital and gets better yeast health. So,
0: yeah, and you know, and I'm obviously I can't say that uh that no commercial breweries do it, but uh, I I just am not familiar with anything and it's hard for me to imagine how they would hold part of the wort when they're they're trying to maximize their capacity, they want to get it all into that fermenter as fast as possible and get on with the next batch. So,
1: yeah. But again, Bjorn, if this technique is working for you to grow, uh, grow up yeast for say something like a Falcon's clause, then as we would say, go forth and do it. You're making your, yeah, you
0: know what? And I know that there are a bunch of guys on the bruise brothers forum who do this and uh, just swear by it. So, you know, it, it's obviously a valid procedure.
1: Uh, like I said, I, I've never heard of it being done uh, commercially. However, as Denny pointed out, that doesn't mean anything.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Believe it or not, we don't know everything. Yep. All
1: right. I think it's time for us to take a quick break before we get
0: into our hops, right? All righty, man. We're going to uh, refill our beer glasses, take a quick break while you guys listen to these messages from our sponsors. And we'll be back in just a minute. Y-East would like to welcome everyone to the new year with our first release of private collection strains for 2018, inspired by the Pacific Northwest's ever-changing forecast of wintry mix. Y-East's Burton IPA blend... West Coast IPA and Rocky Mountain Lager strains will lend their profiles to an array of malt and bitterness balances, mid to low ester formation, and most important, drinkability, for styles as varied as the weather ahead. y yeast has over 30 years of experience producing premium liquid yeast, so you can brew with the same quality, purity, and reliability as the professionals do. These strains will be available January through March at your local homebrew shop. For more information, visit whyusedlab.com.
1: So did you enjoy hearing from our sponsors? We did. We hope that you tell them that you heard about them here on Experimental Brewing. But enough of that. Time to get into some more questions. And this time, it's time to go all hippity hoppity hop with the hops. And Denny, this one's uh, for you right now uh, from Adam Lienberger, who says, I was hoping I could get your take on something. Since you have more experience with playing with beer, so I snagged a Yakima Valley hop sampler pack and am now the proud owner of two ounces of a bunch of hop varieties I've never tried before. I've never had much luck distinguishing many of the different flavors in commercial beers. I had a similar issue with wine until I was in California to visit friends and did a bunch of wine tastings. I couldn't taste the difference between red and white, and even until then. Hey, buddy, guess what? A bunch of Somaliers can't either when they're blindfolded. <laughs> so I'm hoping I can set up some small batches with the same recipe to have these side by side. The roots I'm considering. One, brew a two-gallon batch of each variety, adjusting for approximate IBUs. Two, brew one large batch with a moderate base level bittering of neutral hops, say Horizon, ferment it out, then split and dry hop with different varieties. Three, mash one large batch, bring temp up to mash out temperatures to stop the enzymes, run off and sparge into a different cooler, and boil each batch separately. I have a one-year-old and I'm trying to maximize my time to results. Any suggestions on which route to take? I am keep trying to remind myself to kiss. Keep it, Beery. Adam. Okay, Adam. I
0: think that uh, given your constraints, I would probably go with option number three to match one large batch, uh, run it off into a different container, and then boil each batch separately. That kind of gives you the advantages of number one, where you can uh, use each hop exclusively in a batch, but doing it more quickly by doing only a single mash your option number two to brew one large batch with a moderate base level of bittering and then use the other hops as dry hops or flame out additions or whatever that's great as long as you don't want to uh, test the bittering qualities of each of those batches of hops so with that in mind i would go for your option number three mesh one large batch bring up to mash-out temps, run off and sparge into a different container, and boil each batch separately. Because that way you can make each batch exclusive to one particular hop and really get a good overview of that hop.
1: And I'm going to tell you something different. Yeah, imagine. You don't have a one-year-old, though. No, this is true, but uh, I think I can still uh, save time. I I think the real question to ask yourself is, what do you care about? I think if you care about the complete hop picture, then uh, yeah, uh, item three is probably the right way to go. I don't think most of us care about the bittering potential of most of these hops, uh, because for the most part, most of the modern hops are sort of fairly neutral in terms of their, their bittering characters. It's not like you have Chinooks, you know, running, or, you know, kind of new style Chinooks running around uh, making for really off flavors. But of course, I also tend to hop everything neutrally to begin with in, in terms of total bittering. So my actual suggestion would be to go sort of 2.5, which is start with your idea for doing number two, which is do brew your one large batch, neutral bittering. And then what I would do is, since I think most of the time what we care about, particularly with these new experimental varieties of hops, is their aroma additions. And I do think there's a big difference between the aroma addition that you get from, say, whirlpooling and dry hopping. Then what I would actually suggest is do your boil, get everything out to the finish, and then split the still unchilled wort And do your whirlpool hopping separately, chill, and then drop into fermenters so that you have a hot side and you can then dry hop it as well if you want. And that would be my take, because I think that's going to explore as efficiently as possible most of the hop characters that you're going to care about. So
0: Um, Maybe. I I feel like that is making assumptions about these hops that we don't necessarily know we can make, but. You know, I think that either one of those is going to be more of a time saver than brewing a two-gallon batch for each different variety, uh, unless you have a day when uh, your wife will watch your two-year-old and you can start at five a.m. and brew until midnight and uh, not be disturbed.
1: Well, and I was going to say, you think it's going to take them a whole year to brew uh, to brew all those two-gallon batches, so his one-year-old becomes a two-year-old? You might be right. <laughs>
0: Could could be could be. He says he has a bunch of hop varieties. We don't know how much a bunch is. Yeah.
1: So I. But like I said, assuming that you don't really care about the the bittering potential, I think you can split the difference between two and three and get most of the information that you want out of the hops. But there's where Denny and I disagree.
0: Yep. Right. Imagine that. Imagine that. Okay. This next one is for you. It comes from Scott Mendes via email. Scott says. I'd like to start dry-hopping my IPAs in a keg instead of a carboy brew bucket, but have run into a snag. My process consists of pushing star sand out of one keg into another using CO2 for purging. Then, with CO2, I push the beer into the liquid outpost and fill from the bottom of the keg. My question is, how can I get my keg hops into the CO2 purged keg without them soaking in the star sand that eventually gets pushed to the empty
1: keg? Go for it. Pop open the keg top and add the the hops in the keg bag and let it drop down to the bottom. Now, okay, so here's the problem. What about the oxygen that's entrained in the bag and the hops? Well, okay, when I normally dry hop with pellets, pellets have a lot less oxygen uh, typically entrained in them. So uh, usually I wouldn't worry about it too much. I mean, remember, this is all going to be degrees of measure. And I think by doing CO2 purging of your keg, you're already way ahead of the game. Now, if you're really persnickety about it, And really want to do as much as you can to to keep things at bay. Then one thing that you could do is get your hops into a bag, uh, put them into some other container, and yeah, maybe you have a spare keg or something, and do a CO two purge on that keg or on the other container, and sort of let the hops steep in the CO two for a while. In theory, driving off as much entrained oxygen as you can. It's worse, obviously, when you're doing it with pellet or it's worse, obviously, when you're doing it with whole hops as opposed to pellet hops, but for the most part, I wouldn't worry too much about it. But if you are so inclined, yeah, maybe get it into a separate container with some CO2, Maybe throw, maybe throw it into a mason jar with some dry ice inside, don't seal the mason jar and you know just let that sit for a while and hopefully drive off any entrained oxygen and then add that into your keg yeah you're going to have some oxygen mixing up at the top interface but again i think it's going to be relatively minimal compared to uh you know going into say a normal kegging setup
0: yeah i mean i i, I don't know how else you could possibly do it really i mean i guess that uh, when you open the the keg to put in your dry hops you could uh, keep a flow of co2 going into the keg to try and uh, and help as much as possible but Gases are going to mix to some extent, so there's no way you can avoid a little bit of that.
1: Yeah. So, but again, I think you'll be you're talking relatively minimal invasion. So, I would. I think so too. I think I think that's sweating a lot of the details, but hey, that's what we do as homebrewers. You're still going to be ahead of the game. So. All right. All right. Next top question comes from Bob Farrell via email. He says, "Dear gentle fellows," he obviously got the wrong email. Yeah. Some of us are expecting to receive an accessory soon from Pico Brew that will allow us to distill our own hop oils. Is that what that's for? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With that prospect in mind, what are some good ways for home brewers to use hop oils? Can hop oils be used as a direct substitute for dry hopping? With most sincere interest, Bob Farrell.
0: Denny. Okay, Bob. There, there are different kinds of hop oils, and I don't know exactly what uh, the Pico Brew still is going to produce. I know that uh, when I go to Yakima uh, and go to YCH and see their hop oil operation, they have oils that are mainly used for bittering and other oils that are used more for flavor and aroma. My guess is that the Pico still is going to make more of the latter than the former. So in that case, yes, uh, you can definitely use it for uh, a substitute for dry hopping. Uh, A friend once gave me a little vial of Cascade hop oil that was all about flavor and aroma, and I'd carry it in my pocket and put it in everything from Pilsner to Porter. (laughs) uh, It didn't always work well, but, you know, you can do that. So, yeah, I would say that as far as I know, the Pico Brew Still is going to be used to make uh, hop oils that are aromatic, and you can't indeed use them as a substitute for dry hopping.
1: Yeah, and I I think that's right. I don't think you're going to get the exact same character, though. But also keep in mind that the people who are out there professionally making hop oils have a lot more equipment than just what you're going to have with your Pico Still. (laughs) So. I expect this to be a learning experience.
0: Not, not having tried it, yeah, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. So uh, maybe, maybe we can get them to send us one so we can play around with it, huh? Oh, oh yeah, maybe. Oh yeah, more toys, more toys.
1: Well, and, and of course, obviously, we can also use distilled water so that we can handle all of our RO distilled water questions naturally. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's right. And we wouldn't ever use it to distill anything
1: else, would we? No, that would be illegal. That's right.
0: That's right. Okay, this one's for you. comes from Mark Fancher via email, who says, Hey guys, an opinion I respect noted slight hop astringency in my northeast IPA, confirming what I suspected myself. What are the causes for this? Oh, I'm going to love this one. If you need more info, this beer, it's first word hopped with one ounce bittering, then four ounces of aroma flavor at 10 minutes, chill to 160, and then 30-minute hop stand with another three ounces, then double dry hop at three days and seven days with three ounces each time, that's 14 ounces of hops in a five-and-a-half-gallon batch. I use a spider for the boil additions, remove that, and drain as the wort chills to 160. The stand hops and double dry hop additions are all loose. You want to dive into this
1: one? Yeah, I'm just trying to think because, I mean, one, that's, all, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of hops involved in here. So, I mean, we're almost at a, a pound for five-and-a-half gallons. But then again, I've also known homebrewers who have done more. Uh, without necessarily having hop astringency, there's obviously the question about water, you know, uh, uh, what sort of water are we getting? But yeah, most of the time with uh, astringency, I and mean, sometimes you're just dealing with the sheer amount of vegetation and what, uh, what gets pulled from the tannins from, you know, the leftover brack material.
0: I have to say right now that I have never had a Northeast IPA without hop astringency. Really? It, it's just a, a hallmark of the style and it comes about from the fact that you use so many hops in there and and the way that they're used. I just, I just don't see any way around it. Drew had, makes a good point about it possibly coming from the vegetal material of the hops, in which case uh, maybe using something like cryo hops would be a good thing to do because they have all the vegetation removed. But on the other hand, I have had Northeast IPAs made with cryo hops, And they still have some of that astringency to them, because that's just what happens when you put 14 ounces of hops into five and a half gallons of beer.
1: The key to my mind would be whether or not the astringency is tea-like, because to me, I think whenever you get tannin-based astringency like from hops, it's always very uh, tea-flavored. If it's just from, say, the bittering compounds and whatnot, that's going to taste differently. But yeah, I mean I I really suspect that what you got here is just from the load of hops. I have had a few New England IPAs. Uh, uh listener uh, Mike recently sent me some uh Treehouse and some Trillium and not all of those had a hop astringency to them. But yeah, I think it's I think what you're looking at here is probably just the sheer amount. I would also wonder let's see variety-wise, we don't um uh, Nelson me Citra me Amarillo can sometimes give aspirin-like flavors. I've heard a lot of people who hate Amarillo refer to it as baby aspirin. So that would definitely add to that. And I usually, I'm not a huge fan of Pacific Gem either. So it may also be that uh, some of that could be handled or lessened by some uh, variety changes.
0: It's the style and 14 ounces of hops in five and a half gallons. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I mean, I've had some, I've had uh, more than a few treehouse and trillion beers also, and I have to admit that I found the astringency in all of them. But uh, maybe, maybe that's uh, confirmation bias on my part. Maybe. Okay, and so we have one last question here about ingredients, and uh, I guess I answered this one, huh?
1: Yep. And this one comes from Derek Clark, who writes in. And he says, "Hi, I'm thinking of doing a chocolate cherry stout for the first time." However, I've never really used fruit purees before, and I was wondering about the best way to add it. The main advice seems to be either add it in secondary or in primary after the initial fermentation is mostly finished. My main concern is that if I just pour it into the fermenter, it will just settle on the bottom and be difficult for the yeast to get at. What do you think of making a more watery solution of the cherry puree before adding, with either some boiled water or maybe even some of the stout itself? If it makes a difference, the idea is for a 5-gallon batch with 2 kilograms of cherry puree added, though the recipe is very much a work in progress. What do you got?
0: Um, you know what, Derek, you you can certainly do that if you want to, but I don't feel like it's going to be necessary at all. I think that uh, if you get that puree in there and just stir real gently as it goes in, as the yeast start to uh, eat the sugar in it, it's going to create that running action you see during fermentation and it will just mix itself up. So... My, my thinking is it's not necessary, but it ain't going to hurt if you want to give it a try and it'll make you feel better.
1: Yeah, I was going to say the, the purees, unless you've ever opened up one of them, you might be thinking like, you know, big chunky jammy thing. The purees themselves are fairly liquid, so I wouldn't worry too much about them. They'll mix in pretty well if you really are worried about them not mixing in completely, uh, then maybe just give a, a very light swirl when you after you put the airlock back on. Uh, but yeah. Uh, I I think you're overthinking it. Just get it in there and go.
0: Yep. And remember, uh, even though we don't really uh, advocate using secondary most of the time, this is one of the situations where I think it would be beneficial to use a secondary secondary. When primary fermentation is done, rack the beer over to a secondary, put the puree in actually first, and then rack the beer onto it. That'll help with the mixing, and you should be good to go, buddy.
1: Although, it is also important to note that since this will likely kick fermentation off again, your secondary in this particular case is really just another primary carboy. Yeah,
0: that's right. That's right, man. You're or just a starting door. over again.
1: Yeah. yeah. You're, you're going right. to need some space.
0: Okay. I think it's time to take a break and cool down our throats, huh? Yes, please. (laughs) Yes, please, indeed. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're going to be talking boiling, fermentation, and packaging. So stick around, please. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth-generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. All right. We are back and we have some questions about the boil and fermentation. And the first one comes in as a voicemail from somebody who didn't leave us their name. So let's listen. I have a question for you guys. Um, I live at altitude. I'm from Tahoe City, California. I'm
2: at 6,300 feet. My boiling temperature is about 198 degrees. Um... Are my mash-in temperatures and
0: my sparge temperatures, are they going to slide too? Um, I'm
2: curious. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I'm curious too. You know, I don't think so. But to find out for sure, let's talk to Mr. Science.
1: Well, let me go slip on my nerdy hat, uh, Mr. Mystery Caller. So (laughs) my best supposition here is you have to remember what a boil is. A boil is simply you can input enough heat into the water so that it will actually start to cavitate and release pressure at the, against the surface pressure of the atmosphere right so normally at regular altitude you know sea level that's 212 degrees fahrenheit pressure cooker you know you actually increase the pressure to 15 psi and you can get up to 250 some odd degrees well the case for people at altitude is just that that pr- the amount of pressure being exerted by the environment requires less heat to reach that point in time at which you start to cavitate. So that's the reason why your boil temperature drops down to, I think you said 198. Now that doesn't mean anything about the specific heat capacity of the water. And therefore the effect that the temperature is going to have on other things like say enzymes and whatnot. It's just that when you reach, you're not able at your altitude to put as much energy into the water before it starts to release itself. So in other words, your sparge temperatures and your mash end temperatures are going to be exactly the same.
0: So basically, it only affects the top end. Is that is that the case? So I, it doesn't it doesn't scale linearly. Yep. So if, you're, so. Uh, if your if boil is at one ninety eight, that doesn't mean that your mash temp is also fourteen
1: degrees low. Well, I mean, it basically, just it doesn't have an impact at anything except for that top end. Okay, our next question, boy, it's a long one. It's a fermentation uh, fermentation question. It comes from uh, Cameron Gatsoff. I have a question for you about off flavors. I've brewed about 11 all grain batches since I began brewing again last summer. Out of those 11 batches, five of them have had similar significant off flavors. The last batch I brewed made four in a row that were undrinkable. I guess I would describe the off flavor as a bitterness astringency. The flavor seems to pinch the back corners of my tongue. It then leaves an awful lingering, almost burnt taste in your mouth. These were t- all different styles of beer. One was a Chimay clone, one was a wee heavy, one was a brown ale, and the last was a two-hearted clone. I've discussed this with two friends that are experienced brewers, both of which have seen my process, but neither of them seem to understand the cause. I've done a significant amount of research around the potential cause, and I just seem to be going around in circles. At first, I thought it was fermentation temperature, but the last two batches were closely muttered and well within range. Second, I thought maybe I transferred too much Troube, but the Brewlosophy podcast squashed that. Then I heard that maybe I was pulling tannins from crushing the grain too fine, or sparging too hot, but when I double-checked the measurement of my crusher, it was fine, and my efficiency has always been acceptable. And none of the batches were sparged over 170 degrees Fahrenheit, so there shouldn't be any problems there. I know it's not a sanitation issue, because I am a freak about that. Running out of ideas, I decided to take additional precautions on my last batch. I treated my water to deal with potentially high chloramine levels, even though my neighbor makes great beer all the time with the same water and zero water adjustment. Anyway, I carbon filtered all water used in the process, including my sanitation water, sanitized with Star sand. I also added one Campton tablet and one teaspoon of 10% phosphoric acid to approximately 12 gallons of water. My mash pH was 5.45. I was very careful to make a starter, 1050, and minimize any potential yeast stress from temperature. When I pitched, both the wort and the starter were at 67 degrees Fahrenheit, which slowly cooled to about 64 degrees Fahrenheit after being moved to the fermentation location in my basement. The wort tasted great. But after only two or three days in the primary, the off flavor was present. So my newest theory is wild yeast. A couple of months prior, I had bought some tubing, funnels, etc. on Craigslist, and I believe these could be the source of the wild yeast. What doesn't make sense is that the fermentation seems totally normal. The first two or three days were very active, and the chorizo looked completely healthy. But still there. I'm absolutely at my wit's end. Anything you can think of that I might be missing, is a wild yeast infection a possible cause? Another thing to note, more than one of my batches have finished lower than they were supposed to by three to five points, which I'm told may be a scoby infection. To be safe, I've since purchased all new tubing and plastic funnels, spigots, etc., but have not since brewed another batch. Okay, I'm done talking. You can now answer. (laughs)
0: Yeah, right. Uh, Cameron, boy, there's a lot of info there, and there are no immediate red flags that I see. Um. I'll tell you right now, you've been sanitizing with star sand. And if you think it's wild yeast, then try, uh, sanitizing with Iota four because it will kill wild yeast. And star sand doesn't do that. I'm not saying star sand is a bad choice to sanitize with. Uh, I use it, but I also use Iota I go back and forth between the two of them just to make sure that, uh, any kind of bacteria that's around isn't getting used to one. And, uh, you know it has definitely fixed my wild yeast issues i don't see any other thing there other than potentially i know that chloramine levels spike sometimes depending on the time of year might be that i mean i'm i'm guessing it's real hard to diagnose without actually tasting the beer Uh, You say, I know it's not a sanitation issue because I'm a freak about that, but, yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be. But, you know, I don't see anything right offhand that says to me, yeah, this is what you're doing wrong. Do you see anything there?
1: No, but I think the first step that you took replacing all the plastic is... Probably the right choice, because, yeah, I do suspect that this is wild yeast, and that's going to live in plastic. It sounds almost like that uh, astringency-type thing that he's getting is a a phenol, you know, like uh, that medicinally-type phenol. But Mm -hmm. then again, I don't know, because I'm not tasting the beer. So, Cameron, the other thing I would also suggest is, okay, now that you've replaced all your plastic, brew another batch. But this time, when you brew your batch, actually... Sanitize up a bunch of small vessels, you know, like, say, small little sample bottles, and take samples of your wort at every stage in the process. So uh, basically start at the boil, take a a sample from the boil, make sure you take a sample from the boil spigot, the kettle spigot, then take a sample of the beer post uh, wort chilling. Uh, Like if you're using a counterflow chiller, for instance, you uh, take it out of the counterflow chiller and then also take a sample both pre and post pitch uh, in the carboy and hold those off to the side for a couple of days. You're saying that you're seeing this process in two to three days, which is pretty dang fast, but... Hold those samples off to the side and you, then you can actually evaluate each of the samples. If you see a infection happening and it doesn't happen until you hit the carboys, then, you know, it's something in the transfer between your chillers and your carboy. If it's pre or post pitch, you'll see that based on, you know, whether or not the yeast is added, which samples uh, going wrong. And that's usually about the best way to, to try and figure this out. This is exactly what they do in professional breweries too. And they have a lot of money right on the line. It's really the only way to figure it out. What may or may not be an infection issue.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, the only other thing I can uh, think of that you might possibly want to do is that there are test kits out there that you can use to uh, test your beer and your wort to see if there's some sort of infection in it. Uh, I believe more beer sells them. They may be available other places, too. Other than that, man, I'm sorry that we can't give you a better answer. Uh, I guess you're just going to have to send us one of these lousy beers so we can try it.
1: There you go. I volunteered Denny's Taste Buds.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm not using them anyway. All righty. Our next question comes from Gary Holmes via Facebook. Gary says, Hi, you guys. Love the podcasts. Can someone shed a light on the subject of maltose versus sucrose when using a refractometer? Someone told me that we can't read the sugar levels of our word as the common handheld refractometer cannot be used with maltose. Thanks for any input in advance.
1: Right. So Gary, we had a little conversation about this and you mentioned that the forum poster in question was using uh, John Palmer's uh, how to brew as his sort of resource on this. I'm going to tell you a couple of things. Uh, I did reach out to John because of course I'm going to. Uh, So in one sense, the forum poster is absolutely correct. The common handheld refractometer is calibrated for sucrose and not maltose. But in practicality, the difference is relatively negligible in terms of the actual reading. And so when I had talked to John about this, he says, I looked this up a long time ago. I believe the difference was not significant to the second decimal place for most gravity. So unless you've got a bit running on this, or this is some sort of precise moonshot physics calculation, you're okay using your refractometer with maltose. Yeah, right. Because I mean, remember, um. and the reason they're... And the reason they're calibrated for sucrose is because, I mean, they're used for, you know, testing sugar solutions, most commonly used for testing, say, wine grapes and grape juice out of a vineyard. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, so so technically, yes, uh, it, it, it will be off when you read Maltose with it. But practically and pragmatically, which is what really matters to us, it's not going to make any difference because it's not going to be off enough for you to even notice the difference.
1: Yes, and I... I advise that you reply to your fellow forum mate and tell him, technically, you're correct. But technically, you're also a jerk. Actually, I
0: was involved in that uh, conversation and told him the first part. (laughs) You know me. I I wouldn't do that. Okay. I guess it's uh, time for a quick break here. And when we come back, we have some questions about packaging your beer. So stick around and we'll be right back after this. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle jaded chillers aren't just works of art they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy check them out at jadedbrewing.com
1: Well, welcome back. We hope that you enjoyed those fine messages from our lovely sponsors. Now it's time to get on to questions about packaging. First questions for Denny. And it comes from Hayden Carter, who lives in Texas. And he emailed us to say, howdy, diddly, drew and Denny. Wow. Wow. Howdy, diddly, drew and Denny. Okay. I'm writing in today with an issue on carbonation with Denny's bourbon, vanilla, imperial porter. I've brewed Denny's recipe late 2017. And I've had the beer and keg under pressure for almost four weeks. The pressure has changed from as high as 35 PSI for a few days to 12 for a few weeks. This beer is still flat. My final gravity came in right on point, 1026. Does it typically take this long for a big beer to carb? I put a second beer on the lines and it carbed very quickly. So I know I don't have any leaks or an empty tank. What would Denny do? Ooh, boy. What would Denny do?
0: Uh, I would... I would transfer it to another keg on the off chance that you have a leaky keg, because I can't think of any reason that it shouldn't carbonate. I've carbonated it both in bottles and a keg and never had any problem, although I have had emails from people who have had problems with it. So what I'm getting at is, I don't know, <laughs> try Not- try a different keg and see if that helps.
1: Yeah, I'm going to back up Denny on this one. if. The laws of physics are what the laws of physics are. They are not meant to be broken. And if you have that keg on pressure, it the CO2 is going to dissolve into it. There's nothing magical about bourbon, vanilla, or an imperial porter that prevents CO2 from absorbing into solution. So if your exact same process worked on another keg for another beer... More than likely, you got a problem with that kick. So you know, do the spray test. Mix, mix up some star sand or some soapy water, spray down all the poppets and whatnot, and I guarantee you something's going to leak. The tricky one is almost always the pressure relief valve on the lid. Uh, that one always always confuses people. The other thing, of course, is that you could also be having a lid that isn't seated correctly and is still leaky. Uh, now you said that you had it up at thirty-five psi, but yeah, most kegs will seal by the time they get to 10. Some really are stubborn and need to be at 10 before they seal. So, yeah, you got a leaky keg because I've taken beers that are 18% and carbonated them in a keg. No problems. So there.
0: Yeah, I I can't think of anything else that uh, makes any sense whatsoever. But, you know, I'm not the master of making sense. So who knows?
1: Why well, start now. <laughs>
0: That's righty. Okay, our next question is a voicemail. So let's check it out here.
2: Hey, Denny and Drew. This is J.M. Hammond from the Brutalist Group.
1: My question
2: revolves around a beer I was asked to
1: make. I was tasked with making a
0: chocolate peanut butter stout. I have a stout recipe. I have some chilaka. Peanut butter is the sticky point, literally. I know episode 60 is coming up, so
1: I figured maybe
2: you can help me out. Where would you go? Is there a way to do a tincture for peanuts or use dried PB2? Figured maybe you guys might have an answer. I could help a fellow out. Thanks. Keep up the great podcast. Cheers.
1: Okay, so. This is right up your alley, huh? Yeah. Peanut butter, my favorite <laughs> food. One of my favorite foods, I should say. Uh Yeah, so peanut butter is kind of a pain, and for the obvious reasons, nuts. Now, uh, J.M. asked about PB2. PB2 is great. Uh, I have used it in the past to great effect, and I literally just go and throw it into a, a, basically Everclear for sanitation purposes, and then add that to a keg it age, and then transfer off of the PB2 once I have enough peanut butter flavor. The other thing is, can you make a tincture for peanuts? Yes, you can uh there is a whole notion uh in the alcohol and spirits world of what they call fat washing and you use something like bourbon or vodka to literally take the fat out of an element but also to take the um to take and make the the flavor go into the vodka right so it's exactly the same thing as what I would do with the cacao nibs cuz cacao nibs are also fatty yeah. Take a bunch of peanuts, grind them up. Don't turn them into paste. You know, just kind of roughly chop them, throw them into four ounces of vodka and let them sit for a week and filter out. And you'd be surprised. I've done it with almonds and that worked pretty well. And, but I've never done it with peanuts, but I can't see why that wouldn't work either. So to me, this kind of flavor, whenever you're playing around with something like uh, peanut butter, that's a packaging addition. Uh, put that in right as you're getting ready to keg or ready to bottle that way, you can have a kind of ultimate control on how much of the flavor is there, and you're not going to get any loss due to fermentation. Ta-da.
0: Now, you've used PB2 before, right?
1: Yep. Yeah. PB2, which is uh, basically powdered, defatted peanut butter. And the idea is it's sold as like a protein supplement slash flavor supplement. So you mix it into you know yogurt to make a really thick and creamy peanut buttery dip that you can eat while you're dieting because peanut butter is great, but it is not calorically great.
0: But but you don't mix it. But you put it in beer, right? And you didn't mix it with yogurt, I assume.
1: No, not when I put it into beer. When I when I put it into beer, that was the the first step. Was I I put it into Everclear to essentially sanitize the powder. Mm -hmm. So and then use that slurry in the keg.
0: So what was your assessment of it? Did you get a decent peanut flavor out of it? Oh yeah,
1: yeah. PB two is very peanutty. But if you're, but the other problem is, of course, it comes with you know sort of a texture thing. So you're going to have to kind of pull, make sure that you settle it out if you want to actually get a clean stout. If that's a concern for you, mm-hmm. if it's not, if you don't want to deal with it, that's the reason to go make a tincture out of just peanuts. And uh, by the way, I would also do the same thing with the the peanut tincture that I do with the the cacao tincture and throw it in the freezer. You know, let it uh, let it settle right. in the freezer for a day or two, and any residual oil that got fat washed out of the, the peanuts should form a nice cap that you can just scoop off.
0: Oh, that's a great idea, man. That's a really good idea. Every once in a while, you kind of come up with a gem.
1: Oh, Lord of the Universe, I want this recorded and put onto the ledger for me this week. And <laughs> he said, I had a good idea.
0: Well, you know what they say about blind squirrels.
1: Blind squirrels, ah, they <laughs> run up my trees. All right. So, our next packaging question comes from Rob Stewart. I bottle condition and have used online priming sugar calculators to determine the amount of corn sugar to use. All of my beers have been at the low end of desirable CO2 volume, including the last heavy stout, for which I added more than indicated. The calculators are temperature-dependent, with the idea that more CO2 will be dissolved in the newly fermented beer at a lower temperature. Shouldn't this be determined by the temperature at which the beer was fermented or the current temperature, whichever is higher? It seems to me that if I lower the temperature after fermentation, there will be very little additional CO2 produced, and by using the calculators, my beer will be undercarbonated, which is what I'm experiencing. I haven't found a discussion of this, though I know I'm a bit old fashioned in bottle conditioning. There's nothing wrong with being old fashioned, and in order to answer your question, we'll go to the oldest fashioned person I know. <laughs>
0: Well, Rob, you know, we answered this a couple episodes back uh, in the quick tips, and you are basically absolutely correct. You should use the highest temperature that the beer has been at at any point during fermentation. And to tell you the truth, I don't think I've ever seen a calculator that asks you to enter the lowest temperature. That's pretty weird. The theory is that cold liquids retain more CO2 than warmer ones. So as you warm up your beer during fermentation or if you, like, raise the temperature at the end of fermentation like I do, um, then that's the temperature you want to use because CO2 will come out of solution as the temperature rises. If you cold crash that beer, which is something I also do after raising the temperature, CO2 doesn't go back into solution. The CO2 that was there is already gone. So, the answer is when you're using a priming calculator and you enter the temperature, enter the highest temperature that that beer has reached at any time during fermentation, and you should be a lot better off.
1: Yeah. Remember, there is no CO2 magically reabsorbing except for what's in the headspace, but there's not going to be that much. No. So, yeah, Denny's right. It goes, once once the beer warms up and it stays there for a little bit, the CO2 is going faffing off into the atmosphere. Right. It is faffed away, never to be back in your beer.
0: Alrighty, the next question comes from Wesley Regan via Facebook, and Wesley says, I'm starting to experiment with flavor additions. I just brewed Denny's Bourbon Vanilla Porter, and that was the first time using bourbon or vanilla. I just tapped it last night, and it was fantastic. Rich and creamy. Thanks for sharing such a great recipe. Hey, my pleasure, buddy. I just bought a three-gallon pet bottle so I can brew smaller batches and experiment more. I really want to use oak cubes. The question is, if making a tincture with oak and soaking it in bourbon, do I add the bourbon and the oak, or just the oak? Also, is there a period of time when soaking the oak that the bourbon becomes terrible? I vaguely remember Drew stating the bourbon in a tincture is gross. I've read a lot of posts that recommend soaking the oak and dumping both the bourbon and the oak into the fermenter. Lastly, if using bourbon-soaked oak cubes, how long in general do you age the beer on it? I like using tinctures because once it's added, there's no need to age the beer longer to extract the flavors. Since I only have one three-gallon fermenter, I'd hate to tie it up for months aging it on the oak, but if that's the best way, I'm okay with it. Great show, and hope to say hi and have a beer at the Southern California Homebrewers Festival.
1: All right, well, Wesley, I'm just going to say, uh, yes, the bourbon in the oak tincture is gross, and I don't understand why people add it to the beer, except for they want a kind of a quick hit of flavor. I prefer to do oak cubes, two ounces in a five-gallon batch, and age it for four weeks to six to eight weeks. Cool. Like, I like to actually keep it at nice, uh, low fermentation temperature, kind of almost like in the lagering stage. I think you get better oak flavor that way. That's why I do it. And I think you also get a better ratio of spirit flavor to the wood flavor than you do if you dump everything in all at once. So that's what I do. Um, I tend to to let my oak soak for a good long while. I have some bourbon oak cubes that are still sitting in the garage that now have at least 14 years of aging time on them. (laughs) Wow. I just go and tap them. Yeah. that's like half
0: your life, right?
1: uh, And one-eighth of yours, Methuselah. (laughs) That's right. I just uh, tend to age for about a month or two. So if you've only got the one carboy, time to invest in a second carboy, buddy.
0: Yeah, um, that is often the answer. And, uh, you know, eventually you'll be glad you did.
1: And by the way, you can come find me at the Maltos Falcons booth at the Southern California Homebrews Festival coming up this May. So come have a beer. Bring me a beer. All right, that's our packaging questions. We've got one last segment to do, two more questions. But before we get there...
0: We have two questions left, and they relate to process, so here's one from Mike Jocelyn that came in via email. And remember, anytime you have a question, it's podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Mike says, I hear and read a lot about creating a whirlpool in the kettle to get the tube to settle. I try hard to accomplish this, but my trube is more like a fluffy sludge that covers the bottom. Three to four quarts in a typical five-gallon batch after a 30-minute rest at pitching temp. I boil for one hour and don't see much difference based on grain bill. Is this Troube typical?
1: Is any Troube typical? (laughs) I was going to say. Why do you have to judge?
0: That that is something of a philosophical question there, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So in regards to your fluffy Troube sludgy problem... You know, yeah, it is a problem sometimes uh, to get that whirlpool to actually really make a pile. And particularly, the other thing is, even if it does make a pile, by the time you get down to the point where you can see the pile, it starts spreading out naturally. I think three to four quarts, yeah, that's not, I mean, that's not unusual. Uh, you know, But if you have appropriate kettle straining mechanisms, you can still drag uh, most of the work out from that pile of troop. If you actually are still having problems and you really can't get enough this sort of cohesiveness to your tube, I would say go and take a look at like getting some whirlflock flock and add that to your kettle. Every time I've done that, it actually makes the tube, you know, nice and tight. And the other thing is to also look at the amount of calcium in your water, because I believe calcium affects cold break formation. So that may also help as well.
0: Well, pH does for sure. I'm not. I'm not positive about calcium.
1: Three to four quarts, um, or maybe, maybe, maybe just what I what I'm thinking is the calcium's effect on pH. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: it, it it will have a little bit of one. Three to four quarts seems like an awful lot to me, man. I, I I can't. I'm trying to imagine this in my own beers, and I don't get anywhere near that amount. But you know, maybe maybe I'm doing something wrong. Uh, the other thing you can do is just. Not worry about it, and just get out what you can, and let the rest of it go into your fermenter. I mean, I, I do that all the time, and it doesn't seem to really make a big difference. Uh, I know of a, a couple kind of informal studies that have been done about putting tube in your fermenter, and they both came out to there's really nothing detrimental about it. And uh, in fact, a couple people have found that. Uh, the beer that was fermented on tube turned out clearer and tasted better than the beer that was uh, fermented after being removed from the tube. It's good enough for me, man. I'm
1: pragmatic. Or lazy. Or both. And, or both, yes. And speaking of chilling out about your worries on your process, our final question comes from Sam's Lonsberry, who wrote us an email. and says, I switched over to all grain a year ago after doing Northern Brewer one-gallon kits for a while. After some tweaking, I got to the point where I'm turning out beers I really like with no discernible off flavors, which was an issue I always had with the kits, no matter what. In switching to all-grain, I also made a few other improvements to my process, which I'll mention below. Fast forward a few months, and I meet a neighbor in my new neighborhood with an interest in homebrewing. We get together and brew two extract and steeping grain kits, uh, five gallons from a local homebrew shop. We did pretty much things his way, and honestly, it was a little painful for me how uncontrolled things seemed. Chill the brews down to a warmish temperature, pitch the yeast straight out of the packet, one dry and one White lab spear Pitch if I recall correctly. A while later I got a chance to try both, a oatmeal stout and a triple, and they're both great. No off flavors I can detect. Now I realize that these are probably both somewhat forgiving beers, but I guess I'm wondering at what your opinions are and the importance of some of the controls I thought to be so critical. After brewing with this neighbor and having him come over for one of my brew days, I kind of just feel silly. He's throwing things together and sticking them in the basement for a few weeks, and I'm over here carefully chilling to just the right temperature before I add whirlpool hops, and then chilling to the exact right temperature before I pitch the starter I made days prior, adjusting the temperature of my fermentation chamber a few times over the course of fermentation, etc., etc. If I want to turn out good beers without off-flavors, are there certain things that I need to be doing no matter what, e.g. starters or temperature control, or are there some things I don't need to worry so much about as long as I have one or two of the others dialed in? Thanks for your help and keep up the great wood. P.S. You've answered a question for me before and Denny basically told me to chill out, which was an entirely accurate response. So I realize I'm going over the top here. However, I really don't want to just throw everything out and make it a lazy batch only to find out a month from now that it didn't turn out well and feel like I wasted all that time. So Denny, what do you have to say to Sam? Sam,
0: always remember this. Malted barley wants to become beer. <laughs> that means beer happens, and you. there are certainly things you can do that will make better or worse beer, and you're right. Uh, there are some things that make more difference than others. Uh, now, when you said that uh, he chilled the brews down to a warmish temp, I don't know exactly what that means, but I assume that it was uh, probably not down into the 60s. Uh, th- uh, that That gives me pause. Pitch the yeast straight out of the packet. No problem there as far as I'm concerned. Uh, You know, uh, especially depending on the gravity of the beer. Uh, Let them ferment at ambient temps in his basement, which you assume is in the 60s to 70s. Well, if it's the low 60s, you probably get away with it. Yes, there is dogma out there that uh, tells you what you should do and shouldn't do when you brew. But I've spent the last 20 years of my brewing hobby kind of learning what matters and what doesn't. And I think that maybe you've just started on that. Theoretically, a lot of the stuff that you saw your neighbor doing is a real no, no in the brewing world. But you've also learned that, uh, sometimes reality astonishes theory. That's one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite people, Tom Maliazzi. And, uh, that's that's what's going on here, man. You are in the process of figuring out for yourself what matters and what doesn't. And I don't know if it will always be consistent. I find that for some beer styles, uh, some things matter more than others. And I would say, man, do what I've done, which is try to identify things that you think may be unnecessary in your brewing process and eliminate them and see what happens. It's worked for me. Uh, remember if you have a bad batch, it's only beer. you can always make more
1: well, and I'm gonna to just toss in the other piece, which is you also have to remember that when he got away with it on these two beers, he may not always get away with it you know and he's not you know he, he's not the lead character from breaking bad yeah you know, he's he's gonna get caught up with it at some point right. That's now-
0: kind of what I was getting at, man, you know, it's like it, it, just because it worked now, doesn't mean that it always will. It doesn't mean it'll work for every beer style, but the only way you're going to know is to play around.
1: Yep. And of course, don't forget at some point in time, this hobby is all about what makes you feel happy and makes you feel enjoyment. So if it turns out that process is part of what makes you feel happy, or at least less anxious, do the process.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So um, what I have come to after 20 years is that I'm a lot less anal about my brewing than I used to be, and I'm a lot more about the fun and the experience than I am about the beer. That may be heresy to some of you, but that's me. All
1: right. Well, hey, it's time for us to wrap this up. Let's get out of here. Thank you all for
0: listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I'm on a bunch of different beer forums, although not the Northern Brewer Forum anymore, Drew hangs out at the homebrewing subreddit and on the Slack homebrewing channel. So if you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes or experiments, or even just rant and rave, because we like that too, you can email us at podcast at com. Or if you want to contact each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can always leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1-ALE. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally.
1: Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.